Russ, it's, uh, it's good being here again. How many of you were here last year when I was uh, here? How many of, your, uh, of you have had your GPA go up since last year? No one. Okay. I, I hear it's the custom here at, uh, at uh, Master's College for uh, certain speakers to have pictures of their family and slides and everything. And didn't you do that with a few of the speakers? And I think they were planning on doing that with me, but because the, of the move into the uh, church instead of the gym, they, they decided not to do that. And I thought, well, maybe that's good, because I kind of had a, a concern about that, because often fathers get a little proud and they get a little arrogant about having pictures of their children and family kind of broadcast and so on. I really have a maybe a distaste for fathers who do that, yet... I understand that the audience often likes to know what the family of the speaker looks like. And so uh, I'd like to just uh, maybe put up here two wallet-sized pictures of my, of my two children. And if you're interested, fine. If not, uh, that's your prerogative. Uh, but I just thought I'd do that, so let me get them out, okay? Got my wallet. Wait. Oh, here it is. Okay, let me take my wallet out. So anyway, here's uh, my little girl right here. Now, that's Marissa. And uh, she's about four or five months old. Can you see okay? And here's my little boy. Oh, we, had, we didn't even take it out. This is my little boy, Matthew, right here. He's about uh, three years old right now. Isn't that great? I'll just kind of leave it right here, okay, for you to see. Can you see in the back? Is it kind of hard to see? It's hard to see. Well, here's a picture of my family right up here, okay? So uh, that's my wife. She is pregnant with Marissa, but uh, that's our family, all righty? So maybe if I can just leave her right up, uh, right up. Oh, I'll just leave it right here, and you can look at it, okay? Oh, that's great. Can you believe those fathers that do that? This morning, I would like to speak on, on the topic of the Christ of Christmas. You know, when you think about Christmas, you think about a lot of things, don't you? And a lot of thoughts come to your mind. But how can we really worship the Lord Jesus in this Christmas season? What does that mean? I think uh, as I think about the, the Christmas season and the Christmas story, there are two passages of Scripture that come to my mind. I'd like you to turn, first of all, to Philippians chapter 2. And I think that's the true Christmas story in Philippians chapter 2. And then we want to just look at one other verse. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is talking about unity and of a giving spirit. And in verse 5 he says, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Again, the context being that of giving, as Paul desired that the churches give to some needy folks. And he talks about the churches in Macedonia having given. But then notice what he says in verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might 
become rich. I'd like to share a few thoughts about that verse. And then as I studied for this and just thought about you, I'd like to share several applications in light of the principles from this verse. Now Paul says, though he was rich, though he was rich, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the time that the second person of the Trinity existed, right? Before he became man. He was, he was rich. He was rich. Well, how was he rich? Think about the Lord Jesus. How was he rich? Well, I think one way he was rich because he was the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. He was creator. He was rich because he was creator. His wealth was infinite. He created all things. John 1.3 says... All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And all things were created for him, as Colossians 1.16 says. He was rich in his creatorship. But before he came man, he was also rich in his glory, right? I mean, all the hosts of heaven worshipped and sang before him their incessant praises. Do you realize that before Jesus became man, nothing went forth from him but undiminished glory. Incredible thought. I mean, he was clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. Talks about the glory of the Lord. The pre-existent Christ, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity was clothed in garments of divine majesty and splendor. And nothing was directed to him before he came, became man, but was fitting to God. I mean, he had the worship and he had the adoration of the angels. The seraphim, the cherubim, all intelligent beings rendered to him honor and praise and adoration. Nothing was directed to him but that which was fitting to God. No mockery, no abuse, no unbelief. Everything that went forth from him was undiminished glory. And everything directed to him was fitting for God. He received praise. He received adoration and worship. He was rich in glory. And he was also rich in his authority and power. Paul talks about the fact that he was equal with God. He was judge. He was a ruler. He had honor. He had the divine rulership of the universe. That's his prerogative of, of being God. He had the right to command. He's a sovereign ruler, the supreme lawgiver. He was rich. And of course, when you have someone who's rich in their creatorship, rich in glory, and rich in their authority, you're talking about God. Incredible riches. Is that the end of the story? No. Paul says, he became poor, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich. He became poor. You think about Jesus' life. He was poor. All the days of his earthly ministry, he was poor. His disciples were poor. He was unable to pay taxes. The rich of his day had little to do with him. He was crucified between two thieves. He was poor. I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about, though. He became poor. I need to understand that. We have to go back to the thoughts in Philippians 2, where Paul says, Though he was equal with God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that's interesting. Though he was, he was God and all the prerogatives of deity were, were his, right? He didn't regard being rich as something to be grasped. And that I, the idea of grasp there has, has to clutch onto something, to hang onto it. 
He didn't regard that those riches as something to be selfishly retained. That word regard is interesting. It's, it means that there was a deliberate choice. He was thinking about the facts. And he said, I am going to deliberately make a decision based on facts to become poor. I'm not going to grasp. I won't hang on to the riches of everything that's mine, all the undiminished glory. Receiving everything that's fitting for God. I won't grasp it for myself. I won't retain it. Here he was being worshipped, adored, praised, acting as judge, ruler, creator, Lord, where nothing came from him but glory, majesty, splendor, a radiance so bright, so holy that the angels had to cover themselves. But he made a choice. And he said, I am going to become poor. I'll become poor. And he took upon himself, Philippians 2 says, the form of a, of a servant. Incredible. A servant. I mean, think of it. Here is God entering the state of conception. Here is the upholder of the universe being sustained by the umbilical cord of Mary. He who brought the worlds into beings, he himself brought into the world amidst the cries and groans of Mary and birth pangs. Here was the sustainer of the universe being sustained at the breast of a Hebrew maid. Here is infinite wisdom learning the Hebrew alphabet. He became poor. He didn't join himself to humanity in the state of royal dignity. He didn't come as a king. No, the moment he divested himself of the role of majesty, he donned a servant's apron, right? He became poor. His whole life was characterized by self-surrender. And here's Jesus. As a boy, he's helping his dad make a yoke to be put on some oxen that he had created. He's washing the feet of the disciples and it was he who designed their brains. He's hungry and it was he who created the universe. He's spat upon, he's reviled by men and it was he who made the mouths which spat on him and reviled him. He became poor. And why did he do this? Well, 2 Corinthians 8 9 he says, For your sake he became poor. For your sake. He knew something about our condition, right? He voluntarily did it for our sake. Though he was rich, he became poor. So that, as Paul says, we, in our poverty state, as needy sinners, might be made what? Rich. Rich. Incredible. So we could become rich. He became poor that we might be rich. He laid aside his glory in order that we might enter into his glory. He gave up all in order that we might receive all. He became friendless in this world that he might show himself a friend to sinners. He walked a lonely path in order that we might find the pathway of eternal life. He was willing that all men should forsake him that we might have the fellowship of God. He walked up Golgotha's brow in order that we might tread the streets of gold. He wore a crown of thorns in order that we might wear a crown of glory. He wore a purple robe in order that we might be clothed with his spotless righteousness. He suffered that we might reign. He entered into death that we might enter into life eternal. He laid in the grave that we might be resurrected from the grave. He was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was rich. 
He was rich, but he didn't regard, there was a choice that he made. He didn't regard his riches as something to be grasped, to, to, to hang on to it, to retain it. He relinquished it because of selfless love for others. He altered it for our sake. He didn't see his position as, as something that could be used for his advantage. He became poor. He didn't reckon equality with God as a matter of getting, but of giving. Now that verse in 2 Corinthians 8 9 sure speaks about the true spirit of Christmas, doesn't it? I think one thing it tells me is that it, it tells me to get involved. I don't know how, what you think about when you think about the Christ of Christmas and worshiping Him this Christmas season. But I think about the attitude that Jesus portrayed. Involvement, right? Involvement. And this is a day when nobody wants to get involved. I remember uh, watching a special on Peter, Paul, and Mary that had a 25th anniversary. Maybe some of you saw that. I don't know if any of you remembers Peter, Paul, and Mary. I'm dating myself. But he was, uh, Paul Stuckey was talking about how, how as you look at the magazines of our, uh, of, of our time, actually through the past few decades, you see a progression of thought. And you say, it used to be long ago that everyone talked about life. Life magazine, right? Then he said, there came people. You know, not life, but now it's people. Right? And then there came a magazine called Us. And he said, and someday there'll probably be a magazine called Me, and it'll be 20 pages of aluminum foil so we can look at ourselves, you know, right, as we go through it. In fact, I think there even is a magazine called Self now. What does involvement mean? Involvement means self-denial, doesn't it? Isn't that what Jesus did? Self-denial? And that means commitment. It costs you something. It cost Jesus everything, didn't it? It's commitment. Not like the kamikaze pilot who was able to fly 50 missions. Right? Involved but not committed. Right? <laughs> I want to ask you a question. Who are you making rich this Christmas season? Who are you making rich? You might be rich in a lot of ways. Who are you looking at who's poor? Are you making them rich? In what ways are you denying yourself that others might become rich? What is it costing you to make someone else rich? Could I suggest you several gifts that we might be able to give this Christmas season to make other people rich? And I'm not sure why the Spirit of God brought these to my mind, uh, but I trust that they'll, they'll speak to you. But these are gifts that will cost you something. The first gift I thought about was the gift of granting forgiveness to someone. The gift of granting forgiveness to someone. Would you turn to Mark 11, verse 20? A very interesting verse. Mark 11, verse 20 and following, actually, I, I want you to look at um, verse 25. Mark 11, verse 25. And notice what Jesus says. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, 
so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. In other words, he's saying as you are praying and you become conscious that you have uh, um, something against someone else, someone has wronged you and you have something against them, you're praying to God and maybe there's a spirit of resentment, there's a spirit of anger because of what someone else did. He says, forgive. Notice he doesn't say wait until your brother or sister or father or mother or whatever comes to you and asks for forgiveness. He says, as you're praying, forgive from your heart. Forgive. Can you think of anything more difficult in life than that? That'll cost you something. He's saying there must be in your heart a spirit of forgiveness, experience, an absence of revenge or ill will, and a disposition to forgive so that before my brother comes to me to confess wrong, forgiveness from my side at least has already been granted and given. So when the one who has wronged me comes and actually does ask forgiveness, I say, yes, I do forgive you because I've already dealt with it in my heart. Even before he comes, the disposition of forgiveness has already been settled. You know what? Some of us are really rich. We are. We're very rich. We're rich in that we have the power to grant forgiveness to the one who has sinned against us. Will we give it this Christmas season so they can be made rich? They know they're forgiven. You know, forgiveness is one of the hardest things to do. It is hard to do because when someone has wronged us, we naturally think, let that person pay. And we hold a grudge close, right, to pin the blame where it's due. But forgiveness repudiates open revenge. It does. Forgiveness chooses to hurt, to suffer. And that's one of the hardest voluntary choices a man can make to accept undeserved suffering. And it's hard to suffer because that person should suffer. That person sinned against me. Forgiveness is hard. It's really costly. See, the person who forgives pays a tremendous price. The price of the evil he forgives, right? I mean, if a state pardons a criminal, society bears the burden of the criminal's deed. If I break a priceless heirloom that you treasure and you forgive me, you bear the loss and I go free. Interesting. Suppose I ruin your reputation. To forgive me, you must freely accept the consequences of my sin and I go free. And no one really forgives another except he bears the penalty of the other's sin against them. Isn't that what God did? God says, I forgive you. I want to make you rich. I became poor. There was a cost involved to make you rich. And no one ever really forgives another except he bears the penalty of the other's sin against him. And what does love do? Love says, I will sacrifice myself for you. I will hurt. I will hurt. So you won't have to. And I may continue to feel the effects of the consequences of your sin against me, but forgiveness says, I don't hold ill will against you. And the pain that I feel because you sinned against me, the pain that I feel because you sinned against me is part of God's design to force me to seek his face, pour out my heart before him, allow, to be my, allow him to be my all in all, my sufficiency. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the pain is suddenly eliminated. Not at all. It just means there's a sting that's gone. The best gift you could ever give someone, possibly this Christmas, is a gift of granting forgiveness. 
It may be that some here are fearing going home or being with a family. Maybe the greatest gift you can give your father is the gift of saying, Hey, Dad, I forgive you. You may not even have to say it verbally. Uh, the issues involved may be things that happened years ago. But from your heart to be able to grant forgiveness and show kindness and to show love in a way you'll, uh, maybe you've never been able to demonstrate because of the bitterness of what your dad did to you. I'm amazed as I talk to people in counsel the bitterness and anger that young people and older people have towards their parents, especially their father. Or maybe you need to forgive your mother. Recently I was made aware of someone who had real hatred for her mother and there was such bitterness and she said, everyone deserves a good mother and I didn't get one. And she was angry at her mother. She was angry at God. Or maybe it's a stepmother. Maybe it's a stepfather. Maybe it's a brother, a sister. Like I said, some here may be dreading getting together with family because there's an anger in your heart. Forgiveness is hard. It's costly. It means dying to self. It, it, it's saying, though I am rich, I have the power to forgive. I will grant it to you. You have sinned against me. But I will bear the penalty. I will bear the pain. I'll bear the consequences so you can be made rich. Again, I don't know why I, I thought of that principle in terms of application. But again, I'm just so aware of the, of the anger and hatred that so many people have towards parents. Things unresolved. And they'll continue to be unresolved until there's that spirit of forgiveness. See, worshiping Jesus this Christmas means that to me. It does. That's very practical. Let me give you just one final one. It means not only granting forgiveness, forgiving those who have sinned, but also encouraging those who are faint-hearted. Forgiving or encouraging those who are faint-hearted. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. Do you know what that word faint-hearted means? That word faint-hearted means literally little-souled. Little-souled. And the idea there is that the soul is a picture of the principle of life. But this person is little-souled. Kind of a small life. A little life. A small measure of life. And this is a person who's maybe discouraged for some reason. Maybe they're, they're discouraged because of a, a deep consciousness of their own sinfulness. Or, or maybe they're just despairing about something. But they're, they're little-souled. Maybe you know someone who's faint-hearted. Maybe yourself. Maybe you're faint-hearted. Maybe someone has let you down or someone has spoken against you and you're discouraged. Or maybe you can't understand why God has allowed something to happen to you. Maybe you're growing weary and doing good. You're losing hope. You're losing courage. Or maybe there's someone, something you've done in the past that you regret and it's, and it's coming back to haunt you. Or you know someone where that is true, right? And you're bothered by it and you're despairing. Or maybe it's a particular temptation to sin and it's, and it's just bugging you. And it occurs over and over again. The battle is so great and you say, Lord, where's the victory? Where's the victory? See, this is a person who's deeply discouraged, having a hard time persevering and trusting God. It can be a person who's a new Christian, a person who's been a Christian for many, many years. 
I think this poem expresses the feelings of the faint-hearted person. Lord, I'm drowning in a sea of perplexity. Waves of confusion crash over me. I'm too weak to shout for help. Either quiet the waves or lift me above them. It's too late to learn to swim. Ever feel like that? God, I can't swim. It's too late. It's too, you've got to do something, God. And Paul says, how are we to respond? We're to respond by encouraging. Encouraging. Exercising a gentle, consoling influence by our words and our actions. You know, that's costly, isn't it? Though we are rich, we look at those who are poor that they might become rich. Let me just give you a few thoughts here, just in terms of application. One is just to ask God to make you sensitive, to sensitize you to those here at the school who are faint-hearted. Would you ask Him to, to help you be sensitive to the cues, maybe in the countenance of other people, that point that, hey, maybe they're struggling. Just look at their countenance. Is there a sadness or a sorrow on their face? Notice that. Listen to people's words. Can you detect that they're troubled? Are they bothered by something? Maybe they're usually talkative, outgoing people, but you notice that they're kind of withdrawn. Ask God to sensitize you to that. Pray for eyes to see people like that. Pray for ears to hear their words of fear and their distress. For a heart, uh, Pray for a heart that will, will hurt with them. To weep as they weep. One of the costliest things to do is to weep, truly weep, when a brother is weeping. Especially when we want to rejoice. And though we may be rich in rejoicing, we look at the poor, those who are faint-hearted, and we say, For your sake, I am going to enter into a sympathetic identity with you to encourage you. Because I care for you. I was thinking of a true story in, 19, in 1808 when a gaunt, sad-faced man entered the office of a Dr. James Hamilton in Manchester, England. And the doctor was struck by the melancholy appearance of his visitor and he inquired, are you, are you sick? And he said, yes, doctor, sick of a mortal malady. Well, what malady? Well, he said, I'm frightened of the terror of the world around me. I'm depressed by life. I can find no happiness anywhere. Nothing amuses me and I have nothing to live for. If you can't help me, I'll kill myself. He said, well, the malady, the doctor said, the malady is not morbid. You only need to get out of yourself. You need to laugh to get some pleasure from life. He said, well, what shall I do? He said, well, go to the circus tonight to see Grimaldi the clown. Grimaldi is the funniest man alive. He'll cure you. And a spasm of pain crossed the poor man's face as he said, doctor, don't jest with me. I'm Grimaldi. I'm Grimaldi. You know what? There are many Grimaldis right here in this, in this school. There are. Pray for a sensitivity to know who those Grimaldis are. There might be some students here who are very depressed, discouraged. I might also say, second, not only pray for a heart to sensitize you to that, but pray, pray or rather take the initiative and inquire of them. Take the initiative. Go to them and say, you know, brother, I notice you're a little down. Like something's on your mind. Is everything okay? Is there anything I can pray for you? And hopefully the person will respond, but you have to be patient. It may not come out all at once. Again, the kind of relationship you have with that individual will determine the quickness of their response. But then you don't have to press it if they don't want to share. You don't have to say, hey, well, come on now, I know something's wrong now, tell me. They may come back and say, yeah, something's wrong, you're bugging me, okay? So lay off, right? Just say, well, is there anything I can pray? Don't, you know, just, if, if there is, just let me know. I'd like to pray for you. 
Look at all the good that's being accomplished. I mean, if indeed you were wrong in your perception, nothing is wrong with that person, that person will go away thinking, boy, that person really cared about me. That person was, was entering into a sympathetic identity with me, thinking there was something wrong. There isn't anything, but boy, that really spoke to me. Or if something is indeed troubling the individual and you inquire and they don't share with you, but you leave with a, hey, just know I'm available. Would you just pray? Just let me know if I can pray. You know what often happens? That person will call you up or see you later and say, you know, there is something. There really is something that's bothering me. Thanks for approaching me. And of course, if they do share with you, you now have the opportunity to minister to them. Ask God to sensitize you and take the initiative. And then finally, just encourage. Encourage them. Right? How do you encourage? Well, you might encourage by silence. There were two men who were walking down the road. True story. And one guy was just pouring out his heart. He was really hurting and struggling. And the other guy didn't say a word. He just listened. Didn't say a word. And finally, at the end of their journey, the man who was just so burdened, he turned to his friend and he said, I've never had such words spoken to me. I've never had such words spoken to me. The words of silence. Not only silence, but... By words. By your words. My favorite illustration. I may have used it last year, so if I did, here it comes again. I just like to throw it in every message I give. But it's a football game that took place several years ago. And it was a game between the Atlanta Falcons and the Philadelphia Eagles. Never forget it. It was the last game of the regular season. A win for either team would have put them in the post in the, in the playoffs. 50,000 people jam-packed into Atlanta Stadium. Millions watching on this nationally televised game. Atlanta Falcons were leading 14 to 13, but Philadelphia had the ball on the 33-yard line, 13 seconds left. So out comes the Philadelphia field goal kicker. If he kicks the field goal, Philadelphia wins. If he misses Atlanta, the home team wins. Snap of the ball, kick is up. He missed it by inches. And Atlanta won 14 to 13. Well, you can imagine what happened. And pandemonium all around. Just, the, just the, the, the stands were being empty. Just everyone on the field. And all of a sudden, it was kind of interesting. The camera focused in on that field goal kicker who all he could do just by natural instinct was just to fall on his knees. And he kind of grasped his knees and just looked down at the ground because he had missed. And the camera was right on him. I couldn't believe it. It was just focused right on him. Well, right in the midst of all this chaotic scene, one of the Atlanta players, Greg Brezina, who was rich, right? His team just won. He was rich. What did he do? He denied himself. And where he could have been just jumping up and down and rejoicing, he looked at that field goal kicker who was just down, faint-hearted, right? And he walked over, and the camera was right on this. He walked over, he knelt down, and he said something to the, to the field goal kicker, and then he walked off. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what did he say? What did he say? Well, in the LA Times the next day, there was a report about that incident. And Brezina was interviewed, and he was asked, well, what did you say? What did you tell him when, when you bent over? And Brezina said, I told him this. I said, look... I don't know if you can understand what I'm about to say, but it doesn't really matter if you made the kick or missed it. What matters far more is if you have peace in your heart, which comes through Jesus Christ. Whew. 
though he was rich. Right? He looked at someone who was poor. And he said, for your sake, even though I could be rejoicing right now, I want to weep with you. I want to say something to encourage you. Did the field goal kicker hear? Yeah. He said this in another interview. The field goal kicker said, What bothers me is that I feel I left without letting him know how I felt about what he did for me. I never met Greg before, but when I see him again, though, I'd like to thank him for his words. Given the particular circumstances and the time, they probably were the most comforting thing that anyone can say to me. To have done what he did then and there when people were yelling and there was craziness all around was a real example. Someone who took the trouble to go far beyond the meaning of the game. Though he was rich, he became poor. So someone else could experience the riches. I'd like to read a, a letter and just close with this that a daughter wrote. I want you to listen carefully, okay? Don't put your books away. I shouldn't have said I'm going to close with this. I shouldn't have said that. But she wrote this. The letter is coming up. But she was just reading, writing this. And then I'll tell you what the letter said. She said, My mother died just three months before my parents' 38th wedding anniversary. And as the anniversary date approached, I was halfway across the country at graduate school, hurting deeply with dad and wanting to reassure him of my love on that lonely day, uh, on that lonely date. I wrote neighbors and asked them to have him over for dinner that day. But I also knew within me that, he, that I had to write a special letter, something in addition to the weekly news notes I always wrote home. And I found a card that said, when you're alone, Jesus is there. And in that card, as tears streamed down my face, I wrote a letter of love telling my dad things I'd never had the courage to say in person. I thanked him for the way he took care of our family and especially for the way he cared for mom during the years of her illness. I mailed it so that it would arrive on the anniversary day. I learned later that he cried when he got the letter and he shared it with a few close friends. Ten weeks later, he died of a heart attack. After dropping out of school and flying home to settle affairs, I thought of the anniversary letter while I dumped out drawers and sorted through piles of mail. Had he kept it? Daddy usually saved everything of sentimental value or had the letter upset him so much that he destroyed it. January passed and February as I slowly sorted out his and mother's personal belongings. I found old birthday cards, my grade school papers and letters 10 and 15 years old, but not that letter. Then in March I came across... I came to the closet where luggage was stored and in the pocket of the suitcase he used on a trip the week before his death, there it was. He had kept it with him. I opened it and cried again, thankful I had written when I did. And this is what she wrote. Dear Daddy, I know this will be a very lonely September 29th for you without Mom. I wish I could be there to comfort you. I greatly miss her too. And as I write this, the tears are coming so fast I have to blot my face every few words. I don't know what it's like to celebrate an anniversary with one you love. Though I would desire to be married, God has not granted that privilege, but He did grant it to you and Mom, and along with it, He sent the sorrows and joys that stretched you, refined you, and perfected you. I wasn't there, only a plan in God's mind when Mom's health necessitated the move to California in the early 40s. But I look back on that move as one illustration of a man who, despite the fragile uncertainties of the future, honored his commitment to love and care for his wife. That takes a special man. The Lord, knowing Mom's needs, was infinitely wise when He brought you together and assigned Mom's care to you and your care likewise to her. 
And that is hardly the beginning of the story because as he filled your quiver with two arrows, he deems you worthy of caring for them too. I can't help but believe that the Lord has more tasks for you as you now have greater resources and abilities and time than ever before and he will show you what those tasks are to be. But while we wait either for the hope of his calling or the hope of his coming, we can wait confidently knowing that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come, anything in fact, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love you in a deep way and God loves you infinitely, Jean. And she wrote, each sentence had, had been hard to put down. I had hidden those dimensions of my gratitude too long. Daddy's aloneness now is over, but I thank God that he prompted me to send the note of love and encouragement in time. I just wonder if maybe any here need to write a note of encouragement to someone. It takes time. Hey, you might be rich in time for the sake of others. If they're poor, if they're faint-hearted, it means self-denial, right? Dying to self. We're rich. We have that ability to encourage someone. We have that ability to forgive someone. Those are the gifts I want to give this Christmas as I worship the Christ of Christmas. Are they yours? Let's pray.